0: everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Overnight Trainer Podcast. I'm super stoked you're here and so excited about the guests that we have on today's show. I have Jessica Michaels with me and we have been trying to record this podcast I think since like January of this year. It is now um, September of this year but uh, we both had some scheduling conflicts earlier in the year and then As many of you know my house flooded and I was out of my house for a long time so didn't do any uh, any interviews and so I was so happy to finally connect with her uh, and record today's episode which is super exciting and all about embracing neurodiversity in L&D. i learned so much from jessica in this episode i continue to learn from her uh, her and i met at andy storch's talent development think tank which is a, a networking group for talent development professionals i'll i'll drop the link in the show notes for it uh, for those of you that are interested uh, but that's where, where, where we met. And I just was, I'm always just so in awe of her and always learning uh, from her. And it's just been incredible to see her as a talent development professional um, who is neurodivergent and also stepping into the role of coach and coaching other people uh, who are neurodivergent as well. So really exciting topics. Um, before we get into today's episode, um, a couple housekeeping announcements. Uh, we have, I'm just trying to think when this podcast is coming out. Uh, I think, yeah, it's coming out on, uh, it'll be Tuesday. So uh, tomorrow, so this will be the 21st. Uh, it's coming out on the 20th. So the 21st, uh, don't forget it is the L&D or LinkedIn live workshop. So an opportunity for you uh, to join a workshop, which is all about creating your own personal Brand when it comes to LD on LinkedIn, so we're going to go in the ins and outs, an opportunity for a Q&A. It will be recorded, and you will have access to it for 30 days afterwards. So even if you can't make the live session, um, you still have access to the recording, which is going to be some A plus fire content for you all. So make sure you're signed up for that. Uh, we also have fast track going on, which is the 90 days to your dream LND role uh, group coaching program. And yeah, lots of courses, lots of fun stuff. So go to the overnighttrainer.com. If you're looking for programs, hit programs. Looking for uh, events and masterclasses, hit the events section. And I look forward to seeing you all in all the different things. So let's get into today's episode. Like I said, I am joined by Jessica Michaels. And Jessica has such a, a unique background. She spent 20 years of her career hearing the same thing. You're meeting all your goals, but you're still failing. People don't like you. It had been the same story for her since childhood, but she had no clue really what to do about it. She continued to work through her challenges, became a facilitator, a speaker, a corporate trainer. And then finally, at age 40, she received a diagnosis explaining her struggles, autism spectrum disorder and ADHD. She now uses her experience as a neurodivergent professional to coach others that have challenges in the workplace or a job search, as well as provides consulting and training to businesses across the US. Like I said before, Jessica is a powerhouse. I have, was so engaged in this episode and learned so much from her just in the time that we had today. And I can't wait for you to experience all of her knowledge, all of her amazingness in this episode. Jessica Michaels, welcome to the Overnight Trainer Podcast. How are you today?
1: I am great. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm so happy you're here. You know, we like we've been trying to get this on the books for such a long time, and uh, I mean, all the listeners know about all of my housing, crazy housing situation uh, throughout the last couple months. So I'm so happy to to have you here and for us to be chatting today about something that's a something that's being talked a lot uh, about a lot more than. It has been in the past, but also be something that's very deeply personal to you and to your experience. So I'd love for you to start us off. Tell us uh, you know a little bit about your story. You know, first, I mean, you have a journey into LD, so that's very, very relevant to people listening um, and so much experience in the talent development space. Uh, so I'd love to hear about how your journey in LD, how that became a career for you, and then moving into that personal and professional journey around neurodiversity and kind of where you are. Where you are now and today and, and all of mm-hmm.
1: that so take yeah, it away absolutely and i'll tell the stories together because they are just inextricably uh linked for sure so i from the beginning of life i knew that i was different somehow um you know the thing i think i noticed earliest was other people had friends and I didn't know how to do that. Like, it just didn't, it didn't make sense to me. I didn't know what the process was. And so I didn't have friends. And then, you know, you start to get a sense of, you know, pe- people view you differently. Um, and, but it just sort of was just a, a, a feeling um, because, Grade-wise, most of the time, I did fine. I was very smart. Uh, That was very clear. I was highly verbal. And it was just enough to get by, I think, without causing anybody any alarm beyond, you know, well, she's having a tough time in junior high, tough time in high school, but she'll be fine. You know, and then when I went to college and then into the working world, those things persisted. And when I was working, I noticed that that inability to make friends was more relevant than I thought it was going to be because I had no idea how the office politics worked and how much interpersonal relationships mattered. I was always a top performer when it came to my numbers, right? If I was a recruiter, you know, I sourced the most candidates, I had the most people uh, starting or on assignment. If I was in sales, I was always at the top. But I would have this problem where I would talk to my manager about, you know, maybe promotion or even just my own performance. And they would say variations of, look, your production is great, but you don't get along with people. So there really isn't opportunity for you until you figure that out. I would get feedback that, you know, people thought I was mean or that they thought it was rude. They thought I was aggressive, that I was yelling at them, um, that I was defensive. Um, and eventually you start to kind of become those things when people are telling you over and over and over that that's what you are. So the great thing was that even through this, I was able to find that in whatever job I had, I could teach people how to do something, right? So if I was a really good individual contributor, then maybe I could train new people. Or I would dive into a crazy special interest like physical therapy licensure process across the United States. And I would have all 50 of them memorized and then I could train people on that. So I always managed to make training somehow part of my part of my role. Then I would get promoted because you're a good enough individual contributor. That's the only way to go. I would become a manager. The wheels would just Come off. That was really the worst possible situation. So, that got me interested in learning about management. What does it take to be a good manager? Because clearly I am not. So, how do I become one? And, sort of, through all that process is what eventually got me into training full time and then training managers full time, because those are just things that I had uh, gotten into because of the issues that I had had. Now, even in L&D, once I, uh, you know, once I was still in a position, so it's maybe 20 years later, I figure, okay, I can probably handle managing again. I mean, it's been so long and I know so much more stuff and surely this has got to work. And of course it didn't. Of course it was the same disaster that it was. You know, it was just, it was really disheartening um, because I had earned the right to build a team of trainers and I just wanted it to go well and it just did not. And so I knew at that point that it was probably me. But I didn't know what. So that's when I started uh, seeing a psychologist who recommended me for uh, analysis uh, for uh, autism and ADHD, and ultimately that's what what came about. I thought, you know, with my education and my LND heart was like, "Oh, great! Because now I know what it is. I am sure there are resources, right? I'm gonna go and I'm just gonna read it all and I'm gonna study it all." Uh, and that, of course, that's just not how it works. Yeah, the LND, right? the LND curse. <laughs> yeah, you know. And so then it kind of morphed into, "Okay, so I know that I've got these challenges. I know now why I can't change them." So how does this affect what I train and how I train and who I train and what messaging I support and things, you know, because you really get to a point where you realize I can't, I can't train EQ the same way. I can't train um, communication skills the same way as I did before. And so what do I do? What does that mean for me professionally? What is that what does that mean for me in corporate America? So it's it's still an evolving journey.
0: So the, your story is so powerful and I know it resonates with so many people. And especially, you know, being being active on LinkedIn, seeing people who also are having these diagnoses later in life. Uh, and and you have to now go back and, and say, oh wow, you're even thinking about your your childhood and how that how those things like, well, now it all, it all makes sense, right? In some way, shape or form. And so I'd want to back up a little bit because some of the terms that you might've mentioned or that we might talk about today might be new to some people. So I know we talk about like neurodivergence and neurodiversity, and there's probably many other terms that even I'm not familiar with too. Can you define some of the, in, in, some of the more ter- like terms that maybe we'll be discussing today, give people a little bit of a baseline so they, they really understand the context.
1: Absolutely. And it is challenging because the terminology is evolving. So uh, you might see different forms, you might see different words, but a good base level understanding would be neurodiversity refers to the fact that everybody has a brain, neuro, and that they're all different diversity, right? So if we look at the whole world, the whole world is neurodiverse. But within neurodiversity, you have a group of people whose brains work fairly, you know, pretty much the same way. Like they have the same operating system, right? So let's call those people our windows people. Then we have this other smaller group of people whose brains work very differently than that larger group and similar to each other, those are our max, right? So those, the max, those are neurodivergent individuals. Those would be people uh, who are diagnosed or identify as uh, people with autism, ADHD, dyslexia. Those are kind of the big ones. But then it even gets further with um, like things like Tourette's and uh, dyspraxia, and there's even some argument about what other things to include. Um, But for our discussion, the thing that you typically see in the corporate world is people who have challenges in interpersonal communication uh, in their executive function. So like actually doing the things and Often, lots uh, they might have sensory challenges as well, uh, so that's kind of neurodiversity in a nutshell. That's
0: a be- really beautiful explanation. I love the Windows Mac analogy. I think that will resonate with a lot of people too. So, I you actually what I want to dive into next. You you already mentioned it a couple of times just in your intro, and this was a, po- a it was about a post that you did this is a while back now since we've been talking. But you did a post on LinkedIn, and it really sparked something within me. And it really changed the way that I think um, about the idea of neurodivergence and neurodiversity. And so I wanna read that post and then talk a little bit more about it. So you said this, emotional intelligence, active listening, essentialism, self-awareness. What do these concepts have in common? They have great potential to be ableist in the way they are often expected, taught, and put into practice. They can give the idea that there is one way to do things to be successful, that deviation is bad. And any challenge in doing these things means you can't be a good professional and certainly not a good leader. That's it sounds like that's your story too, in a nutshell, right? Talking about earlier around you know, feeling I can't be a good, a good manager. And it's not that you can't, it's just that that's what, from a societal perspective, that the the Windows people are are saying about about the Mac people for going back to that analogy. So can you dive a little bit deeper into what you mean by that and how this ableism manifests specifically in the way that we train these topics? Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. And, well, uh, you can tell I was feisty that day. <laughs> like, I, like, I like feisty, I'm Jessica. Sick. I was yeah. like, oh, shit. Yeah, girl, like you go for it. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was fighting words right there. And it is something that's very relevant to me because I primarily train soft skills, and what can happen is, uh, if you look at these concepts like EQ or like essentialism, they all, in you know, really, I'd say most of them, if they were taught exactly the way they were intended, with their the full breadth of those concepts, and if everybody who trained it and took it did an intensive study. Then you'd probably be okay with most of the things because nothing about EQ inherently is ableist. However, most of us, when we train, and most other people, when they train, we're not diving into the original material. Necessarily, that the people who created these concepts have uh, would would recommend we're getting kind of a, a telephone version. Right. We learned it. We learned it. Then somebody else, you know, we taught somebody else. And, and and then when you look at the time pressures, just that we have an L&D. I mean, I would love to do a six week intensive emotional intelligence course wouldn't that be great? And then, or just get real grimy with essentialism, right? All of these things, because that would allow you the time to get into things like, Hey, if I'm a person with ADHD, how do I make essentialism work for me there within the the bounds of that concept or how, you know, if my self-awareness is quite frankly, very different than other people's we would have some opportunity to get get into that. But what we do is we have material. We maybe live teach a one hour webinar with three other concepts. Um, We make it a bullet point in manager training. I mean, there's just realities of what we do. That means that we're not teaching these concepts in the way that they were intended. We're kind of taking a bastardized version or like a Cliff's Notes version. And what's ableist about that is when you do that, you really run the risk of only teaching what applies to the masses. So if I have three concepts to teach, then, and I have an hour to do it, I'm going to, Pick the material that is most brought. I'm going to say EQ, you need to... Understand what is not being said. You need to understand the feelings and emotions that the other person has. Active listening. You know, you really want to make sure you are um, engaged and that you're making eye contact. And and you know, that's you know one of the the, the ways that you can communicate. And then um, maybe with uh, essentialism, you know, you really make your your listen. You you get your your essential tasks, the one or two things, and you focus on them and you just let go of all these other things that are not necessary, right? Put that out. Great. Problem is that every one of those things that I just said will make somebody hop mad because it's, it's offensive. I cannot physically, my brain will not ever allow me to understand what somebody else is feeling unless they tell me your face doesn't tell me anything other than you got one. That's great. Uh, But other than that, I need to ask you, I need to know if you're mad, you need to tell me you're mad. But what, what happens ultimately then is so we've got this concept now that's really watered down. We're teaching it in this way that applies to most people but not all but then we're also training employees then that if my manager this is the way they show eq right they need to do this they need to be able to figure out what i'm thinking and feeling and what my needs are and if they aren't doing that in this way then it's wrong well then they must not care they must not you know, do these things. So we're, we're really just putting this idea of what is professional in this tiny little box. It's like, you know, 100 years ago, a bunch of old white men got in a room and said, here's what a professional person looks like, sounds like, and acts like, and we just keep unintentionally reinforcing that. And um, so, yeah, I think that it's not something people are doing intentionally. And there are some people who really get to the heart of these concepts and and would never maybe teach the kind of just the Cliffs Notes version, but that's not the reality for most of us.
0: When I read that post, it made me think about all the times that I taught a communication skills class and talked about eye contact. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it really has been through, through reading your content and hearing you speak and, you know, some other thought leaders in the space too, but really I, I've learned so much from you because it's those, if we're operating from those, that windows, right. And that's what those old white men, you know, thought a hundred years ago, it is, it is a conditioning that we have to, I know people don't like to use the word unlearn anymore. It's not cool. It's not cool to use that word apparently, but
1: Oh, I unlearned is that, is, that, is that a thing now I'll have now, to yeah, put it to the list. It's a, <laughs> okay. yeah, we, you don't un
0: it. you don't unlearn. I don't know, whatever. But
1: I think in this
0: case, unlearn it. <laughs> like un- unlearn it, right? That there's so many other ways. And one of the things that you just said was really was I was thinking about my, the, the next question around, oh I was gonna ask you if you think L and D has a role in perpetuating this ableism, but in our conversation, it sounds like unintentionally we do right? It doesn't Absolutely. sound like intentionally we're like, well, all right, let's be ableist, but no. unintentionally we're perpetuating it. So, so how, how then if, if I didn't, if unintentionally we're perpetuating it and people are going to listen to this episode and say, okay, now I'm, now I know, now I have the knowledge. What can L&D professionals do or be mindful of, be conscious of as they now move forward in looking at their content and developing new learning programs and making sure that they are being inclusive from a neurodivergent perspective.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, and I think, and I don't want to make anybody feel bad because I, when I learned to be a trainer, the things I learned were, okay, if the class is engaged, they're going to have all eyes up front no phones are gonna be out, nobody's gonna be doodling or or looking anywhere but at me, they're gonna be throwing their hands up when I have uh, questions, they're going to be really engaged in partner activities and all of these things that I use to determine if I was doing a good job, all of those things are in some way ableist. So I really needed to shift my focus from things like, well, what are my attendance metrics? right? How many people logged into this Zoom call? Um, how many people completed a workbook while they were doing this? How many, you know, how did this person respond when I just called them out of thin air? And I had to let that go. And my ego was a little challenged by that because, I was just used to that energy as truly a a part of my facilitation and how good I thought I was. So I had to switch my focus then to truly, what am I here to do? Well, I'm here to help people learn. And in business, you're here to drive a behavior change. So instead of looking at attendance, who came to this webinar, who did this one thing this one way, you should flip that and look at did they? Are they able to do the thing? Whatever the thing was that you're training, can they do that? And that doesn't necessarily even mean, did you teach them to do that? It's, can they do that? And separating that from, and did they come to the webinar? And did they attend the live training? And did they turn in a workbook? And did they, and did they, whatever, watch the e-learning? And that was a hard shift in a lot of ways, because it's just not the way we're set up. Um, So I think focusing on the outcome is important. I also think giving people multiple ways to access information is critical. I heard a lot, I'm writing a book right now, it's almost done. Almost done on I'm so excited.
0: I'm gonna like be highlighting, underlining. I I cannot wait.
1: (laughs) So it's on neurodiversity in employee growth and development. And it started just being a book for trainers uh, and instructional designers, but then it's anybody who imparts information, anybody who is responsible for learning moments within an organization, so managers, enablement, uh, you know, onboarding, orientation, things like that. Um, One, So in that process, I was interviewing a lot of neurodivergent professionals saying, okay, tell me about your learning experience in corporate. And so many times I heard, well, you got to watch these videos, right? And so you got to watch till the end, or you've got to do these e-learnings, but I don't learn that wait that is i i can watch that a thousand times and i'm not going to learn it so i just put it on and wait till it ends and then i find the process document or or whatever and i read that or i just try to hit next as many times as i can if there's a quiz i try to take it if it sends me to a document then i'll, I'll look that but i will find other ways of accessing the information outside of what you have provided me to learn and I will now have had to do all these extra steps to do the thing that I thought you were helping me with, which was learning. So we ask people to go through motions without really realizing that that's what we're doing. But to me, if I am teaching a concept and I have a desired outcome, you know, my objective is to make sure that at the end of the day, All of the people in this group can do X. I don't care if they came to the live event. You know, if they did, cool, but I'm not going to require it because some people don't learn that way or they just don't prefer to be in that environment. Some people would prefer to just listen to the audio or watch, um, you know, watch the recording or find the process document. I don't care as long as they can demonstrate in however way I've decided they're going to be assessed. That they can do the thing. The challenge is then though, my program say, like, oh, well, your attendance on your webinar is really low because there's no way to take this job aid, this process document, and say, Oh, these people participated. This is like attendance. So it it all kind of <laughs> goes together, but I think um, so multiple ways to access information and then Pay attention to what your your outcome is and, and how you're going to assess that and let that be the guide over how they participate, I think is really important. And the last thing is never just give one way to do things. Or ex- like, you know, when you're saying EQ, you have to just intuit what the person is saying. You have to listen to the words behind the words Was always my favorite one. Well, some people can't do that. So if you say that that's what you have to do, and then you have to have a cue to be a good manager, then you're telling people you're not going to be able to do this. So instead of that, then say, and if you, you know teach that, absolutely learn the words behind the words. Great. If you're not able to do that, or if this is not something that comes naturally to you, then here's some good coaching questions. You know, here's a way to design an alliance with an employee to create a psychologically safe space where they feel that when I ask these questions, they can tell me. And those are, those are, so those are kind of my three, my three big rules.
0: Those are great. And I think it's such an important lens to a go back through all of what, what, what are you training right now? What are you developing right now? How are you developing employees and looking at it from the lens of what you just said, uh, and then saying, okay, here's kind of some pillars, and I'm sure your book will be like the guidebook for this, uh, but these pillars now to think about when it comes to moving forward and designing and developing learning experiences, and it the, the what came to my mind as you were talking was like L&D also, we, we have to get over ourselves, and that's something I talk about a lot of like early, early, early on in my L&D career, you know, I learned around like the golden rule and the platinum rule. And I, and I, I love both of those, like the golden rule is, you know, do unto uh, others as you would want done unto you. And I think a lot of times learning professionals design that way and think that way, well, oh, this is how I would want to learn EQ. This is how I would want to do this. Like I would get bored if I did that, or I, I wouldn't want to read a process document and it's not about you it's not about you, like at all, like literally at all. It has nothing to do with you, but that mindset, because we feel strong in our beliefs or we, that's how we were brought up, or we have, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of conditioning in that way. It's hard to break. It's really hard to break. But I think once we can say, here's the lens, we need to look at it from, which is really the people centered lens at the end of the day, no matter what, uh, I love those top, those tips that you gave to, to really start to look at it. So I want to shift for a second, because I know that many of the listeners are job seekers. And and I know that there are some, including some of my personal clients, who are neurodivergent. So I know that you, in addition to having a really wonderful talent development role, you also do coaching for people who are neurodivergent. And so I kind of want you to put both of those hats on if you can for a sec, How would you advise people who are who are neurodivergent through the navigating the job search and the interview process? Because Mm -hmm. I know and the next question I'm going to ask you is how do we make that process more equitable? But knowing that the world exists right now as is and it's not always equitable and inclusive when it comes to uh, neurodiversity, neurodivergence, what what can job seekers do to to, to show up and to, yeah. to be successful in that process.
1: Absolutely. And this is really where, um, you know, one of the things that galvanized me into action was learning that 80 to 85% of autistics are un or underemployed. And that just broke my heart. I got lucky because my first job was in recruiting. I you know, had applied for an admin position. I just knew I didn't want a waitress anymore. So I just fell into this world where I learned the rules of, hey, when you interview somebody, here's what you're looking for. So I learned what people looked for. I learned so much just as a fluke that and most people don't have that have that opportunity. So I had no idea then that, that that would be such an important part of my life. But I think right now with neurodivergent candidates, a couple of things tend to be blockers. The first is when they are applying for jobs, they'll look at a job description and sometimes they will say, okay, well, this is asking for 12 things. I only have 11 of them so I'm not going to apply because I'm not qualified. Or they'll see things like, we want a rock star, we want a hunter, we want an ace, you know, and not apply.
0: That's hilarious. I'm like, I had to mute myself because I was like laughing hysterically at that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, and and, in women, statistically women already don't apply to as many positions as men because they tend to want to have more of the listed qualifications than men do. Uh, and so men will just throw their resume in and, and hope for the best. And uh, women tend to be a little bit more cautious. Then you add neurodiversity on top of that. And it, it really does make women who are autistic or ADHD really reluctant to, uh, to apply because they feel like they can't, they're breaking a rule, they shouldn't, Um, but, you know, so just, just get your resume out there, do tailor it to the position as much as you can, you know, you should have a resume that does reflect what you do have that is applicable for that position, but don't wait until you have 100% of the things listed, because honestly, a recruiter is going to look at that and go, oh, you're overqualified, so, (laughs) So you're shooting yourself in the foot twice. Um, the other, so that, that I think when you're, you're job searching, and then also have an organized job search. Um, when you're using all these aggregate sites, when you're using Indeed and, uh, and, you know, and all these other places to find, you might be applying to the same job 30 times and not knowing that that's what you're doing. So you do need to be organized about the company, the role, and making sure you're not wasting effort by applying, oh, on the company's website and going through Indeed and send, you know, it, and that is just, uh, it, it leads to frustration because you feel like you're you're wasting your time. Um, then from an interview perspective, you do always want to ask questions in an interview Even if you don't have any. So you should have prepared a few questions to ask that you can use if you don't develop any natural questions throughout that interview process. Also in the interview, you always want to remember that any of the questions they ask you, they're looking to see kind of how you've done things previously and how might you do them now at at my company. So when they say things like, tell me about a weakness of yours, you really want to think about that and say, okay, well, how does this apply in this context? The fact that you make terrible chocolate chip cookies is not helpful in this situation. So you want to present something you know, that is applicable to work, but also what you've done to improve on that because you always wanna end with a positive. So maybe uh, your Excel skills weren't strong that was hurting you early in your career. So you took some online training and now you're you, you, that's something that you're much better at. Um, if they ask about a failure, again, work-related, but also something where you did learn something and how you're going to prevent it from ever happening again. So it's just really thinking about not only what is the question and literally what are they asking, but thinking about the context of the interview and what they're after to formulate your answers. And I highly recommend mock interviews. I know coaching is uh, not accessible to everybody, but there are some great resources on common interview questions. And uh, there, so there are things you can learn that can help prevent you from some of those situations. And don't ask about money or vacation time on the first interview. I know it is why we all want jobs, because we need money, but you can't say that. And I know how dumb that sounds.
0: I actually disagree with that last point. I coach all my clients to never leave the first interview without knowing what their, what their salary range is and what they're, what they're budgeted for. Because um, I've had way too many clients get to the end of interviews and the process and spend hours and hours and hours and hours prepping and showing up to interviews and only to hear that the salary is Twenty thousand dollars less than what they're making. So yeah. uh, definitely, what I always encourage them is that's not the first question that
1: you're asking. No, it shouldn't be by your any question. Means. Or you, the like, why do you want this role? What interests you in our company? Uh, I need a job, and I need a job that pays. Not, not the answer they're yeah, looking for.
0: hundred oh, percent agree with that. Yeah. So now let's flip the script, right? So that's what people who, what people can do to prepare. So it sounds like preparation is a is a key part of that there so in addition to not kind to of talk about what lnd can do but you i don't even i learned from you yeah, that you were in recruiting before too so I, i'm learning so much about you personally also so what can recruiters and hiring managers and leaders do to create mm-hmm. an equitable and inclusive hiring and interview process that's mm-hmm. inclusive of people who are neurodivergent yes uh, that's so, what needs to happen that
1: yes it you know,
0: is that's that's what's more fair yeah
1: So the first is be literal and clear in your job postings. No rock stars, no aces, no hunters. Specifically, what does this job do? And what does the person who's gonna do it, what do they have to have, what would be nice to have? And I know that sounds so basic, but it is a huge problem. We just, you know, we, we look at uh, job ads as advertisements, I think, in, in mark more of a marketing piece sometimes. or we look at them as aspirational. Like this would be the perfect, perfect person who could jump in and, and do things from minute one. Um, but that's really not what we're trying to do most of the time. That's not realistic about the, the candidates. So clear job descriptions that are have literal language, then when you look at an interview itself, There's all of these things that we have learned, right? That tell us if it's a good candidate. I remember when I was sourcing, I would, when I would talk to somebody, I would want to see, did they drive the conversation? Because I was recruiting for sales. And so that was something, it was very important. What does that even mean? Like what, what, that, that doesn't mean anything. So when you're looking at these things, like how they, presented, the questions they asked, did they make eye contact? Um, do How do those things compare to what they have to do on the job? If the job is being a developer, then does whether or not they had a good handshake have anything to do with how good of a developer they're going to be? So we just have to separate out these social expectations from actually finding out if somebody can do the role. So if there are alternative ways to determine that. Like if somebody can turn in a portfolio, if somebody can do a sample project uh, or somebody can demonstrate their skills, then often that you will get a truer picture of what that candidate can do compared to this unnatural setting of interviews. It's also good I think to just ask, are you comfortable right now? Because things like a light I always tell the story, my wife can tell if a light bulb is about to go because it makes a different sound before it goes off. And she can also tell when your cell phone is done charging because it makes a different sound. So she can hear those things. If you think about all that sensory input that people are bringing in that you don't notice, how well do you think they're gonna do answering questions when this light sounds funny, the cell phone is charged, the fan is buzzing, you know, so why can't we just accommodate that person and create an environment where they can, um, where they can think and, and speak? Um, and you do have to train hiring managers for sure on how to be inclusive because from a hiring manager's perspective, they are trying to figure out, can I manage this person? You know, how are they gonna fit into my team? So this idea of a culture fit, needs to go, needs to go, needs to go, needs to go. So there needs to be some really good training and support. I always advise companies if you're gonna put in neurodiversity programming, don't start with recruiting, start with supporting the employees that you have through ERGs and diversity training and manager training, and then go into recruiting. Um, and then, if you do have a neurodiversity-friendly or a disability-friendly setup, make sure you advertise that. Or in your job ad, say if you need accommodations, let us know. But you have to mean it. If somebody says, "Oh, I need the questions in advance," then you need to give them to them and not use that to disqualify them.
0: Yeah, you see that a lot in job descriptions about accommodations, but it's, like, the last thing all the way on the bottom and, like, tiny italicized font, like, and it's the, like, the standard, like, legal jargon of, like, we are accessible and we will accommodate. And it's, like, the robot wrote that. Uh, I really love what you're saying about truly meaning it. Like, really, truly meaning it. Like, please let us know what we can do to accommodate you. Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on creating overall best practices. Like, so you had mentioned around sending the interview questions ahead of time. Uh, another guest of mine who was recently on, uh, Christy Woods, she focuses on networking and most of the people who are introverted um, and say and, and gave that same advice around, you know, from an introverted perspective, making it inclusive for introverts, getting those questions ahead of time really helps them prepare and be calm. They not feel to think in that moment necessarily. So what are your thoughts on, on make, like, making some of these practices an overall practice versus having, making someone have to ask for them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. I say, you know, neurodiversity is one of the few areas where you can target maybe 30% of your population and positively affect 100% of your population. Ooh, that's a mic drop moment. Yeah, I love that. I know. <laughs> and so, because even if people don't identify as neurodivergent, because a lot of people don't know, or even if maybe what they prefer doesn't go to the level of, I need an accommodation under the ADA's definition of accommodation, everybody has preferences. Everybody has things that make them more comfortable and things that they prefer that allow them to do their best work. And so if we approach things from that perspective of being flexible, because we truly want people to be able to do their best work, which is what we should want, then it, again, you're helping those neurodivergent people, but you're really helping everybody who might you know some people don't want to interview with the camera on because they've been on Zoom for 2 years and it's making them crazy or seeing themselves is a distraction does it matter if that person is neurodivergent or or not if that is something that would help them focus and help me determine if they're a good fit why would i not want to do that so i think if we approach the workplace overall as being more neuroinclusive and and creating cultures of preference where preferences are understood and honored, then you'd I mean it it would change the world. I love that.
0: I love that. Thank you for all of those mic drop moments right there. And I really hope that people listening to this take everything that you've said in in today's in our conversation because what you're what you're talking about are not. I want to say the right thing here, but there, I would say it, it's not hard to make some of these changes. Like you're not talking about complete overhauls of culture or ways of working. You know, you're talking about really realistic. I think that's a better word to use. Really realistic things that and, and ways that uh, what we can implement. To, to your point, yes, it yes in 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 thinking about this smaller population, but that's going to benefit. Everyone, uh, as as a whole, too, and that what what you're talking about here aren't things that take years to put into place. These are things that and and ideas that people can can really think about implementing tomorrow, today. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really, mm-hmm. really appreciate appreciate that. So uh, two last questions for you. One is a question I ask every person, uh, which is, what are you learning right now?
1: What am I learning right now? I am learning a lot about communication. And how to create a communications process, because one of the most challenging things that neurodivergent individuals have is that we like you and I speak the same language, but we have totally different dictionaries so the way that I feel and express emotions and is totally different than maybe what a neurotypical person would, but the neurotypical person doesn't know that. So they're going to read my words and actions through the lens of what they know and what they've experienced. And so in trying to create kind of a a system that is, you know allows people to really let go of their expectations of what communication is I've learned a lot about, you know, throughout history, how people have communicated in different communities, maybe who don't use, uh, you know, who, who don't use language that we would recognize, you know, where, where it's more, uh, you know, diff- different sounds that we would not easily identify as being as being language. So I'm learning a lot about language and, and communication right now. So my Useless knowledge uh, fountain is just overflowing right now, which is pretty great.
0: <laughs> I love that I feel like that's uh, from a, an l and d perspective, you know like I said before like the the curse of L and d we just can't we can never get enough. All right, last question. Where can people connect with you? I am sure people are going to listen to this episode. Um, They're going to want to connect with you, follow you, learn from you, um, hire you. So how people connect with you? What services do you provide? Mm -hmm. um, When can we get your book? All of those fun things.
1: Yeah, so I do uh, offer speaking services. So I will come in and do general employee trainings or if there's a specific topic that people are looking for, I'll do bespoke talks. So, um, and that information is on my website. I also do have a few coaching slots open for neurodivergent professionals. Uh, So again, go to my website, which is coachjessicamichaels.com. The book will be coming out this fall. Uh, hopefully early in the fall, but you know, (laughs) we'll see. Uh, It's called One Size Fits No One, a practical guide to neurodiversity and employee growth and development. And information will be on my website. I'm also on LinkedIn uh, and all my media links are on my website because I do publish content on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and then LinkedIn as well.
0: Wow. I need to get, I need to learn from you. you need to get on those platforms too. But Jessica, thank you so much for hopping on with me today. Uh, I have learned so much. I continue to learn so much from you. Uh, I will put all of those links in the show notes as well. So people can find you very quickly and connect with you, uh, but appreciate all that you're doing, all that you're doing, uh, you know, on behalf of the neurodivergent community and you know all that you're doing on behalf of L as well. And, and like you said, when, you know, when a small population wins, we all win. So thank you so much for being here today and. I know for sure it won't be the last time we have one of these conversations.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If it resonated with you in any way, please let me know by subscribing, liking, and leaving a review. I'd love to hear from you on how you're using these tools, as well as what you want to hear more of. So connect with me on LinkedIn, at Sarah Canistra, send me a DM, or email me at hello at theovernight trainer.com. I can't wait to hear from you. And until next week. Stay learning.